Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Budget, where we explore the human side of finance through the eyes of CFOs. Today, our guest is Sabrina Castiglione, the Chief Operating Officer at Pento. Sabrina has left her mark in the finance industry with her unique approach and impressive accomplishments, notably as a CFO at Tessian. Sabrina's journey is one of remarkable contrast. She has navigated the analytical worlds of chemistry and finance while also holding a deep passion for the fantastical. Evident in her love for the Wheel of Time series and her unique collection of the Lord of the Rings swords. Growing up, Sabrina embraced her individuality as an emo kid, a personal style that she carries with her to this day. This sense of uniqueness spills over into her professional journey as well. From developing and monetizing an original puzzle game to being the seventh employee at Tessian, Sabrina isn't one to shy away from uncharted territories. Her leadership style centers around the concept of healthy, productive conflict. Having experienced the rapid growth of a team of 7 to 95 in just two years, Sabrina understands the importance of embracing the changes that come with scaling and the necessity of evolving from a generalist to a specialist. Beyond her professional accolades, Sabrina is a dedicated advocate for diversity and equality. She is actively involved with the WISE campaign, promoting careers in STEM for women. Alongside her analytical acumen, she also values empathy and connection, often recommending fiction reading as a way to understand different perspectives. Join us today as we dive into the vibrant and multidimensional world of Sabrina Castiglione. From her early day as an emo kid to her current role as the COO at Pento, Sabrina has seamlessly blended her love for the fantastical with her career in finance, proving that CFOs are as diverse and unique as the companies they steer. My name is Danielle Keevan. Let's uncover the hidden stories of finance professionals as they navigate money, investment, and growth. Let's look into the person behind the CFO title. Let's go beyond the budget. Before we get into the episode, if you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review of the podcast wherever you listen. It helps out the Paddle Studios team tremendously and lets us continue to uncover the hidden stories of CFOs. So why don't you tell us your name, your company, and in just a few sentences, what your company does. My name is Sabrina Castiglione. I am the COO at Pento, uh, and we make payroll painless for the UK businesses by automating the payroll process end-to-end. As a finance and people person, this is something particularly close to my heart. Yeah, so I grew up just north of London in a place called Hertfordshire. But if you think of it as like Greater London, it, it kind of is. Technically, I was born in Enfield, so that makes me a North London girl. But um, that's uh, quite some time ago now. So yeah, it's, you know, commute about that weird mix of like not quite urban and not quite like rural. So you get these kind of fields interspersed with, um, you know, industrial parks and things like that. But I was there until I went to uni and then, yeah, came down to London and never left. And let's take it way back. Can you describe your childhood bedroom for us? Like, was it shared or did you have, did you have your own? 
Do you have any posters on the wall? Did you grow up with cats or did you only get a cat when you got older? Like, tell us what the situation was. So I'm an only child. So I, you know, did that whole maximization of resources thing nice and early. So I got that bedroom all to myself. No one else stealing that. And actually there was a spare bedroom that was next to mine where I actually spent most of my time. And it was papered wall to wall with Lord of the Rings. At one point, even all four walls, ceiling, the door, you could barely see the furniture and actually in the room that I have right now there are five swords on the wall because like this is like my little Lord of the Rings armory so yeah massive fantasy geek from way back when so my actual bedroom was like quite plain and like neutral and sparse and then there would be this spare bedroom where I would spend all my time that was just fancy chaos and what did you want to be when you grew up yeah i never really knew but i um but i asked my mother once what she thought i would be when i grew up and she said she wasn't sure either but my grandmother was dead certain that i would be a lawyer because like she'll talk back to you this one that was that was her thinking and you said you were an emo kid like pink hair fringe over the eyes black skinny jeans it seems like you kept some of that style with you up to this day yeah what was the origin of your interest in all of these this goth and emo style i mean i would just like your classic dissatisfied rebel child it would just it was just I think a way to, to act out. I mean, I loved the music, was into like post-hardcore then, still into post-hardcore now. But yeah, it was just kind of the, the scene that I was in at the time, you know, not really, I wasn't really engaged with a lot of the people I was at school with, had a group of friends outside of school. And that friendship group was very focused around music. So I kind of fell into that. So yeah, these days it's more goth than emo. People describe my dress sense as business funeral. Is it a funeral? Is it a board meeting? It'll kind of blend into each wall-to-wall smart black dresses, nothing else whatsoever. But yeah, I know, just an only child kind of growing up in an Italian family, you know, strong Italian family roots. And I was, you know, very, very kind of different to the whole go and do like the childhood thing and then get married and have kids. And I think I was rebelling against that from quite a young age. And were you into math or finance as a kid or did that come up later in life? Definitely not finance. Like I was always quite good at maths, always quite like quite enjoyed it. Like I did maths and advanced maths at like TCSE and then maths and further maths at A level. But I was never like um I never into it for its own sake, if that made sense. It but at the same time it just I don't know, it just always kind of made sense to me. Like I, I never had that kind of dread of maths that some kids have. I do remember once um, my mum who works at a bank, she brought home like the little maths tests so they would give like the people that they would hire into this little bank. And like, I'm probably in like year six or year seven, like having a girl in sort of doing quite well. And she was like, oh, okay, a lot of people failed this test. So I mean, it was always something that I have uh, sort of like a natural affinity for, but it'd be unfair to say that I had like any kind of particular love of it, to be honest. But I, I like the logical element of that. I think in almost all roles, that kind of logical analytical ability is underrated. That ability to just kind of first principles figure things out. But I think the pace at which the world moves now is wildly different. Like my mum's worked at the same place my whole life. Over 30 years, she's been there. It was like, that's amazing and just does not happen now. Like jobs, just companies even just change too much. And I think just the ability to like reason things through or figure things out is just so underrated. 
and people in rate experience a lot, but um, an experience is, you know, valuable. It helps build up those pattern matching abilities that can, you know, shortcut you to right answers sometimes. But I think whilst people appreciate that, like just that ability to be someone who can figure things out is really important. I think if I took one thing from all the years of maths, it's just that, I don't know, there's something to it that helps you start thinking about how to get from A to B and to just kind of figure out a way. I think there's like a lot of like creativity in maths that's kind of over. But at university, I ended up doing chemistry, but I actually specialized in physical chemistry, which is that like the physics end of chemistry. And not that I remember any of it now, but there's something just really beautiful about that application to the real world. I think if I went back in time, I probably would have done physics and like sort of gone even kind of closer to that. But I think subjects like that, like maths and physics, are things that you only really get to the really, really exciting stuff by the time you get to uni. And it's like a lot of like laying the groundwork before that. And I kind of wish I'd realized that earlier. Too seduced by like fires and flames and Bunsen burners, which I take away from you the moment you get to universe. No open flames. My favorite part about getting to know you through what you've mentioned to us and through what you've shared online is that your several interests in the fantasy genre, including your favorite series being like Wheel of Time and all of your association with geekery. But I'm very curious when you're, because this is something that I imagine for myself, but when you're reading, which scenario do you imagine more? Do you imagine yourself as one of the characters that you would read about? Or do you imagine yourself in the same world as the characters you would read about? And I think it depends on if I am reading it or if I'm thinking about the books. And and I mean, I probably spend like a disproportionate amount of like, especially like just about to go to sleep time, thinking about whatever it is that I've most recently read. And I think when I'm reading it, I do sort of really absorb myself into like the character's shoes. But I think afterwards, after the fact, I think I very much sort of, where would the story go outside of that? I do really love fiction though. I think it's one of the few ways that you can like actively go and build empathy because it's one of the true ways that you can actually put yourself in someone else's shoes and live through their shoes for for a while. And like you don't really get that with anything that takes that experience and puts its own colour on it, like watching a TV show or even like audio books I don't find are as good for this as just like being able to paint like the whole picture in like your own head. But you know, I have a role that sits kind of you know, I look after finance teams, but I also look after people teams and talent and hiring. And you get to a certain point in your career and like you have two kinds of problems that you're ever solving. Like you're solving like logic problems. And some of those are math, some of those are sequencing, some of those are first principles. Or you're solving like people problems, which is like group psychiatry and like trying to like get organized groups of people to do something. And to the degree that I have any skill in the latter, I, I put it down to like spending a lot of time reading fiction. I'm bored borderline refuse to read non-fiction. Like I'll read a blog, I'll read a summary, but I find it really hard to read like business books. But actually some of the things that, you know, have worked really well have come from things of like seeing some of these other interactions play out in practice and like getting a view behind other people's eyes that are sometimes like very different to you with very different motivations and incentive structures and things like that. The biggest thing I want to pick up on there for me personally is I struggle with like reading with focus and there's probably a little bit of dyslexia in there as well. Audiobooks are kind of my default if I need to read something because, you know, I can, I can, I feel like I can get through it a little bit easier, but I'm very much with you where it's like, I don't love audiobooks where there's a lot of personality from the actual, from the narrator, because it feels like, you know, I'm already getting this like 
you know, when you're reading, you're getting, you're reading it like secondhand in a way. It's like you're, you're putting your own personality into it. You're putting your own inflection on the voice and everything like that. And when you hear it, when you hear it being re uh, read by someone, especially if they like kind of read like in a way that you maybe weren't picturing the character, it's like you're that, what you're saying there is that that empathy is like one level removed. So I'm very much aligned with you on that point. And, and I love rereading books. Like, you know, my favorite books, I probably reread every year and, and i don't think you get that and it, people often say like is, is that still like exciting and it's like yeah because you can just put a really different picture over it every single time or like you you interpret something in different ways and maybe this is just like a book snobbishness part of me but i just kind of hate anything that tries to like put like one concrete interpretation on like the picture of what i'm looking Last little thing, and then I'll toss this out back over to Danielle. Is so you've mentioned it, and you, I know you mentioned in the, your CEO secrets video that is out there about building your Lord of the Rings sword collection. I'm wondering. I want to know more about that. Like, do you have Sting? Do you have Andrew? Like, are, like when did that whole when did that start for you? Yeah, I mean, I can give you like a little tour. So that is Hadabang, which is uh, Arwen's sword. Over there, we have um, Strider's sword and Legolas's fighting knives. Over here, we have Andromil, which is Aragorn's sword. Yeah, and, um, and then this, this isn't a Lord of the Rings sword. This is a sword that um, my last company, when I was leaving, as a leaving present, they went and got me a sword and they engraved it with a company logo. So yeah, that's my, my little Lord's Tessian, so um, email cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah. So it's got the little Tessian um, hexagonal logo on it, both on the sword and on it has got the scabbard. But if I put the scabbard up on the wall, it keeps falling off. So yeah, the swords are real. They are real, but they're really here. You said you initially focused on chemistry while at uni, including early focus on STEM with your time at, I'm going to say this right, Exit Tech? Excite Tech? Excite Tech, yeah. Excite Tech, thank you. What drove you to that place initially? I was always like a sort of quite smart kid and like, you know, did well at school. I ended up kind of doing chemistry just because, as I said, I think like if I went back in time, I would probably have done physics. But I wanted something that was both like logical, but ap applicable to the real world. And I really, really loved the subject at school, like had like a really natural affinity to it. Like I probably would have like in the years going up to university, maybe even the first couple of years at university, if I had to guess, would have said I'd become an academic just because I love learning, right? And like that's really cool and that academics get to go and do learning every day right but as part of my degree the, it was like a four-year degree and you come out with a master's but that fourth year was a year kind of doing research I do not have the patience it takes to do research especially not in chemistry where you go into a lab every day and you do something and you do it again and you do it again and then you know spend an inordinate amount of time like applying for funding and things like that it stopped feeling like learning and I know that this isn't true for those of my friends from university who went on to do chemistry and love it but to me it felt like I'd gone into like a factory job to just kind of do things over and over again and so that didn't work out for me so then I was like well I've got to go do something exciting I guess I'll go do actuarial joking like the most boring thing in the world but um, I mentioned that like my parents are Italian and it was like well you can be a doctor or an accountant or like you know some kind of like something professional actuarial felt like oh it's a thing probably be quite good at it let's go do that turns out that when I'm bored with something like I am terrible just terrible to be around full stop like if I'm not excited by what I do but I somehow stuck it out for about five years um doing pensions actuarial which just kind of fell into as like a 
well, I guess, you know, my dream of being an academic is dead. Why not dedicate my soul to like doing this instead? And then sometime towards the end of that, someone who just knew me much, much better than I knew myself said, do you know what? Um, Because I'd like come home and started complaining as I had probably had done most days over the last five years. Now, why don't you try speaking to startup? I think you'd actually really appreciate being the order in the chaos. And with my upbringing, my response was just kind of like, well, don't be stupid. That's not a thing that adults go and do, like, right? I've got responsibilities. I've got to go have a proper job doing something. But this person convinced me, go speak to some companies, see what it's like. And in the end, I think one of the things that got me off over the line, they were like, and you know, maybe they'll go bust in three months. So it's not like they'll blame you, right? This was kind of before I was interviewing for finance roles in startups where if you go bust in three months, they will absolutely blame you. And yeah, I came across Tessian and they were hiring for a chief of staff, which is like the most wonderful vague title that everyone just shoves whatever, whatever gaps there are that need filling like under that role. Um, but they had a commercial co-founder and two salespeople, they had two technical co-founders and a data scientist, and they just really wanted someone else to make all of the other stuff just go away. And it was like, well, that sounds like ridiculous, but also quite fun. So like, let's give that a go. And then, yeah, fast forward six years. Because I know that you mentioned, I think it was in that same CEO video, Secrets video, where you came around to technology by, I assume you mean tech, like a fairly uh, fortuitous route. Is that what, is that what you were, basically what you're just talking about? Okay. I, I look back on that and you know when sometimes you're just like, how much does just luck and being in the right frame of mind at the right time, looking for the right thing when the right opportunity is there. It was just the case that someone had convinced me to go and start speaking to companies and this one company with these amazing, amazing co-founders happened to be hiring for the perfect role to like put me in. Not that I knew at the time, at the perfect stage of company to like go in there with just the best attitude towards do you know what like she'll figure it out which you know isn't isn't leeway that everyone would give or get in these companies and then we went on this growth journey together that allowed me to then learn all of this stuff yes actuarial has links to suck to uh, finance but it's not really what i was doing before and you just kind of pick everything up as you go. I mean, I was CFO for, well, actually when I became CFO of Tessian, I started doing SEMA for like the accountancy qualification. So I actually qualified as an accountant after becoming a CFO. You know, this wasn't something that I really felt that I had like any like God-given right to be on this path for. There's a lot of luck in it, but I always think, you know, just because like it's luck doesn't mean that you don't absolutely take it and run with it and make the most of it with what you can. So it was like very, very fortuitous. I don't know. I like to think I would have found my way somewhere here eventually, but I was very lucky that I exactly that moment, that particular role was there with those amazing, amazing people. Some of the best years of my life at that company. I have a question about that because I was looking at you being CEO now, you've been a CFO. Usually, typically in, in a C-suite when a CFO is very respected and a little bit of reverence there to some degree, but you've been in the role. Like, So how does your interaction now differ having done that as well before becoming a COO? I guess maybe it's better to like come back to like how I approach it. Like I'm an early stage company person. The 2000 person company that has like very distinctly siloed well-defined roles and like some degree of stability that's probably not me 
partly because I love to meddle and get involved in things that are like outside of my remit and, you know, really kind of understand the business. But I also just fundamentally believe that, especially in early stage businesses, like there, there is no job that is too small. Like there is no responsibility that is too low that you don't do it. Zero tolerance for like not being in the details. Like if you need to like go and solve something, I don't have like 12 layers of people to like push this down to. It's like you go and you, you figure it out, you solve it yourself. So I don't know, like in one sense, like there's, there's kind of like no reverence in it because it's just kind of like, it's cool. It's just another job. But it's just that instead of just being responsible for your one job, you're responsible for all of the jobs below you. And like, if for whatever reason they can't be done, like you go and you do it yourself. Tell us about your time implementing and monetizing an original puzzle from your S. Castiglione Limited LinkedIn experience. That was towards the end of like my very last actuarial job. And actually was probably partly why the person who told me go and speak to tech was like very strongly of the opinion that I should go do it. Is um it was like a project I had at the time. And I like to think that I always have like a project going. It just so happens that for like the last six years, like the project has been my company. And it turns out that's the best thing in the world because I'm never more energized than like when working on my project and like I get to do it every day and get paid for it. Like amazing, amazing. Like the best life hack that there ever was. But my project at the time was I had just decided because my partner at the time, he was, did some like part-time development for like some golf club website or something. I forget. But anyway, I was like, oh, that looks cool. Can you show me what you're doing? And so he showed me like a little bit of, um, a little bit of JavaScript and a little bit of HTML. I started like trying to build this like little puzzle game. I think I still have it on my phone, you know, I'm going to go and see it. It probably doesn't work anymore because it's just been there for so long and there it is still there and it was like my little thing where I would like go and I just wanted to learn like a little bit of coding so I went and I built this game and like when I say monetize like I put ads on it that that's it that's it that's the, the monetization but it was like a little project that I was trying for for a while just anyway this was this was kind of even before tech was like really cool this was like 2015 2016 you know the rise of like 2020 and 2021 hadn't really happened yet it was just like a little self-taught project that um yeah it was really fun and was probably what prompted someone to sort of say why don't you go and look into tech and you got into tech as an employee number seven as the chief of staff at Tessian. Tell me about your interview for that role. Did you feel like you nailed it? I hope so. Actually, funny story. They told me afterwards that, um, and at the time, like basically the whole company would go and interview someone, right? So I had like all three founders and like one of their other employees as well. We had like the interview and Tim, the CEO, like walked me out. This was back when we used to do interviews in person. Like how long ago was that? Um, walked me out to the front door and they told me afterwards that they got together and were like okay we're gonna prank Tim when he comes back in and so Tim apparently comes back in and is like I think she's our one and they all apparently were like I don't think so and I think she's right for this and apparently just like kept led him on for like a few for like 10 minutes or so I just knew with that team that they were just excellent people the kinds of people that I would happily spend a lot more hours than I would ever spend doing anything actuarial in like a given 
day with and, and still have energy at the end of it. It turns out that we were all at the same university at the same time, but we were like one friend away from being friends. We eventually found out who like the one friend was that like we all knew, but that um but never never saw fit to introduce us. But yeah, I don't know. Sometimes as an interviewer, I hate it when people say these things about you just click with someone or you just know or you just get that feeling. Sometimes you just do. Like I walked out of that and I thought, you know what, these are the people I'm going to be spending the next few years of my life with. And and it was, and it was absolutely amazing. And I got a sword out of it, which not many people can say that. And it goes to show how well they knew me because I think, you know, most people, if you got them as a sword leaving gift, they'd be a bit like, not really sure what you're trying to say here. Here it was like, she'll love it. She'll love it. It's great. Okay. And you mentioned that you only started a process and qualified as an accountant during your early startup years. What did it look like while still having the responsibility of a full-time job? It was intense. It also became a little bit of a, this is going to sound awful, but like a little bit of a game as in like, just, you know, what is the fastest that can possibly like run through this particular exam? And I'm like, by this point, you know, had been doing the books and all the rest for years and picking up a lot of like the basics, just, I mean, Googling, asking people, the community of finance people in London is really wonderful and generous and happy to take the time to like sit with you over a spreadsheet and figure things out. But it came down to like a really careful calibration of like, how quickly can I go from having opened the textbook to sit the exam? And I think in the end, we got it to like under four days for each of those. So like, it was like a pretty like managed thing. Depressingly, like Christmas was like my bonanza period where you would take two weeks off. It was like, great, going to do three exams over this time. But it was, it was like a pretty intense 18 months. And, you know, startups aren't like the easiest places to chill and like, carve out some time but I was fortunate by that point to just have an amazing team around me you know people who are either still at testing doing great things such as Emma who was head of finance who's still there and doing absolutely incredible Paige who was the head of people and she's now VP people and talent of multiverse Eva who was like head of legal and she's now head of legal at incident bio like just an amazing team around you and actually just like a lot of really kick-ass strong women which was great and we all just kind of led into it and we just kind of coordinate around like we know that some of us are going to be out or busy at this time but it's just the magic of working with great people you can make things happen changing culture of a company as it grows including your experience going from 7 to 95 employees in two years at Tassian. I'm particularly curious about your thoughts going from a generalist when a company is small to a specialist when a company is much larger. I guess the hard thing for me is that I don't think I ever really became a specialist. I think probably that's why I wanted to come out of you know Tessian which I think was you know nearing 300 people or so when I left to kind of go back to an early stage thing is that like there is just something in my soul that rebels against specialism and doing the same or even similar things every day and I, I, I don't actually think that that's necessarily true of any job that is truly the same every day I am not someone who is going to ever love going deep on like just finance or just people or just legal and you know and that's hard and I think it was one of the the hardest realizations to come to at Tessian and like this company that like I loved so much loved the people that I was around loved the business doing well growing and it was just a 
case of, you know, what's going to be great for me is like not the same thing that's going to be great for the company. Like that's a hard, really hard realization to to go through. But I think in some ways it's one of the the beauties of startups is um, that they do change so much. But, you know, the, but the hard part about it is it's probably going to change past the point that is like perfect for you. Because like, once you hit that point, you can only kind of go down, go down from there. So I loved it, but just realized that being like a total specialist is is probably never what I want to do, or at least not for like a good long while. And I think, you know, it's a transition that, that is painful, like the first time. And I know a few people who've done this transition a couple of times, and it doesn't sound like it necessarily gets easier because, you know, you, you form this bond and you have this knowledge and rapport and you have great people around you. But I think if there's one thing I really prize, like in addition to like first principles thinking is it's like self-awareness. And I think you've just got to be aware of what the world is that you're interacting with and like understand when it's like you that changes to meet the world versus like when the world changes to meet you. And it was like, am I the world of, of this company that is doing great is not going to change to fit around me. And like, I have to either choose to accept that or change my proximity to like the, the situation and very, very difficult decisions to make, but ultimately great. And I love Pento as much as I love Tessian, but it's always just hard to, to kind of do the right thing sometimes. What would your advice be for people in that situation? Because I hear what you're saying. I think being in a startup so early makes it very personal and the ownership is very close to your heart and you kind of see it as your baby whether you're the founder of not or not and what would your advice be for people that are kind of unsure whether like you're saying it's ever-changing it will go through so many phases when do you say okay it's time like you're talking about self-awareness i agree but what would like some of the telltale signs be of hey we're going down the wrong road or, or actually hey i need to steer this for myself it's time to move to a different I, th- I think the first thing is you've got to be willing to like to be the thing that is wrong in the situation you know it's very natural especially like when you're going through when you're going through some of those realizations to like to make it about the company uh, you know things that i often here when I see other people going through this transition is like oh it's changed they're really out of touch now leadership doesn't know what it's doing anymore the company is making the wrong decisions all of the great people have left I think probably from having been in like a HR perspective and kind of watched other people go past the point where it's healthy like kind of was able to kind of see what are a lot of the stories that make total sense as like defense mechanisms that people tell themselves when they hit that stage. And so I was really conscious that like, I did not want to go into that stage, like at all. I wanted to see it coming and like to recognize where that point would be and not end up being, you know, the person looking to blame this thing that I really loved and helped build for outgrowing like the stage that was perfect for me. But I think some of those are like the common, the common thing. And it's not so much about, you know, are you reminiscing? about the good old days everyone reminisces about the good old days you know even if the good old days were like six months ago it's more a case of does that come with like a feeling of bitterness like you know do you resent some of the growth of the company for you know going to a point where that thing that made it so special to you because you could sit across all different things like is this no longer an option Uh, i think it's particularly hard for generalists because you know if you really don't want to specialize like the business will outgrow you 
at some point. And that is really, really hard for all of the reasons that we said, like it's personal, it's your baby. But like, you know, even people who actually have babies, like the kids got to grow up and move out sometimes. But I would say like go into it with like honesty. And I think if you've got great people around you, great managers, great founders, they're, they're not going to see that as like a negative. Like they will probably see it as like a really mature conversation. And just make sure that you're always leading on the way out. So many people I have seen over like the last 10 years who have just burned every bridge on their way out of a company or just like checked out so early. And like that's like the last impression, like the last taste that you leave in people's mouths. And it is such a shame because it really colors a lot of what the experience that people have there. I think whatever situation you're in, like when you're there to the last day, like be there be there and care as much as you can i think when i look at a lot of the people who you know left either you know pento or tessian at various points in time and those who i'm still in contact with and think really highly of a lot of them really like they left as they started on a really really good note realizing that like it is a job it is not a family you know you can take those relationships with you but they put care into making sure that they left in a way that was really positive and what did it feel like when you first became cfo it looks like you had to assume some other responsibility at first before shifting the focus solely to that role by being the head of people the head of talent at different times what what was it like for you I mean, lovely, obviously, to be recognized, but honestly, like a little bit anticlimactic. I mean, by that point, I'd kind of been doing the finance, all of the finance and the fundraising and the board investor relations and things for like quite some time by that point. And the reason I use the word anticlimactic is because I was at an investor conference recently with another former Tessian who's recently started his own company. And that was how he described it to other people. It was like, wow, they made some really CFO. Like, was she not already? And so it kind of felt a bit like that, but um, but also just amazing to be recognized. You know, I think it is hard for companies of a certain stage to really like home grow talent, like when they're not quite big enough to have like big formal programs programs but not so small that it's just like you know that that real rocket ship but the founders really kind of lent into supporting me and that, that is not something that you can take for granted it's had amazing people around me in terms of like the day-to-day of the job like it did not change like a hair between like day before and, and day after and you know it was probably an unusual cfo role compared to some uh, certainly uh, it wouldn't look anything like a much later stage cfo role because it was still so split across you know all gna areas plus whatever thing was on fire at like a given point in time and a lot of people ask me about oh this it was cfo before it's cro here like what's the difference it's like it's not really it is the thinking and resource of last resort wherever there is something that needs to be picked up or a fire that needs to be put out like that's where you go and you previously stated when you get to 40 50 people a company can feel a lot more corporate you said the most important thing is to embrace it Figure out how to make it healthy, productive conflict as a part of your culture in in order for your business to succeed. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? What does that productive conflict look like from a CFO's capacity? So the way I think of it is when you're like a 20 people group, you can probably find ways to keep 20 people happy, like with a decision. You know, you you can probably do something and get 20 people like fully genuinely on board. By the time you hit 50, like it's getting really, really hard. And like suddenly you have to shift an objective away from making everyone happy. Like you are going to have 
by that point, you're going to have more specialists. Not everyone's going to be a specialist, but like you may have a marketing person and a salesperson and an engineer, and they all have slightly different focuses and lenses about the North Star that is like really, really critical to them. And actually, you don't want to take that away. The way that I often think about it is if you draw up like on like a, a piece of paper, all of the things that different areas of the business care about, sales care about winning new business, marketing cares about leads and brand, customer success cares about retention and adoption, engineering cares about scalability. And you look at any of those things and you think, well, none of those are bad, right? Like ideal world, I'd have all of those and they'd all be perfect. But then you have like a certain amount of product and engineering resource and you have to pick one over the other, right? Like you can't, well, I'm certainly not anymore. You can't go and hire like a hundred different teams to just do everything. There are going to be some trade-offs. You're going to have to one day say, do you know what? We're going to build something and it's for new customers. And like it is focused on new customers and we're going to have to deprioritize existing customers because it's really important. We expand our ICP. And that is obviously going to sound better to a salesperson than it does to a CS person. And like that is that is conflict. And like trying to take all of that conflict out of a system is just impossible once you reach any kind of scale and stage, once you actually have specialisms. You know, these people are specialists because you want them to care about and be really good at the thing that they care about. But it is going to come into conflict with other areas of business. And the other reason it's important is because everything sounds like a good idea in isolation. If you're the CEO and the salesperson says, you should really build this thing because then I could go and I could sell it for money. And the CS person says, you should really go and build this thing because then I can keep these customers and we won't lose money. And marketing say, we should really build this thing because we can market off the back of it and we can get all of these leads. And the engineer says, oh, if we do this, like we'll be able to scale more. All of those things make perfect sense in isolation. And if you try and do all of them at the same time, you go bust in like three months. Like, you know, you, you split your focus, you split your energy, you spray money in like every possible direction. You need to be able to have the conversation that knits all of those pieces together and comes out, come out with an answer that is the best focused thing to do, which is not going to be a compromise. Like often the compromise between two things that make perfect sense in isolation is something that makes no sense at all. And if you're not willing, like whether it's as a finance person or a CEO to say, today we are going to focus on existing customer retention or where the focus is going to be on new sales and say no to some of those other things, especially if you're doing that because you want to keep people happy, you will make bad decisions or you will make halfway house decisions as like a compromise that doesn't really meet either objective. So I do think like creating an environment once you get to that size where that conflict is not seen as a bad thing, where challenge is not seen as a bad thing, where like people understand that it's about getting to the best answer together not just the best answer for my team is really important both from like a company building perspective but also from a finance perspective because otherwise you're going to be in that classic example where me finance person mum says no they go ask the ceo dad ceo thinks in isolation it sounds like a good idea gives it the green light and suddenly it's like well, what do I do now? And I've yet to meet a finance person who doesn't go, God, I know exactly what that feels like when you say that. And can you talk to us about your involvement with the WISE campaign? It seems like you had a, a consistent attachment to encourage careers in STEM, as well as promising diversity and equality, as promoting, sorry, diversity and equality. 
Yeah, so I was involved in the WISE campaign for a number of years, particularly in the early Tessian days. Um, and it came out of, you know, this was the first job that I'd ever been responsible for talent teams or recruiting. I thought that the careers that I'd come from in like actuarial and finance were bad. And then I got involved in tech recruiting. And you're like, okay, yeah, there is no diversity here. Or there is like very, very little diversity here. And this was back in the everyone's in an office day within commuting distance in London and just you might see 200 applications and not a single woman and it was just really startling you know you hear about it but just until you really see it it's it's quite hard to believe just how few women there are in disciplines like computer science and I was talking about this with my CEO and he was like well why don't you go and see if, if there is you know who else is out there trying to solve this and came across the WISE campaign which is a campaign for like gender equality in, in STEM more or better put like gender parity in STEM as well trying to encourage more women and girls into STEM industries so science technology engineering and maths and what that turned into is they had like a board which is called their young professionals board for people under 30 that's actually why I stopped doing it because I went past the went over the hill over the at the age 30 and was no longer young enough to be the the on the young professionals board but and we really had like a mission to try and take the fight earlier because what we realized is it's all very well saying there aren't enough women in tech jobs that's because there aren't enough women doing tech at university because there aren't enough women doing tech at a level because there aren't enough girls picking tech at GCSE and it's one of the really hard things that like the British education system makes you choose those subjects so early and especially for women you pick it at exactly the point that all of your hormones are like piling on all of the peer pressure and telling you to conform it is exactly that age and if your friends are going and doing drama English and Spanish you're going to end up going and doing drama English and Spanish so I do have like this big belief that gender parity in especially in computer science and I speak about that just because it's the one that I'm close to closest to being in tech it really is a generational challenge and it is something that we have to address way way earlier because the impressions that we have around what subjects are and are for girls just sets in so young yeah and it's partly why I'm quite a fan of like the international baccalaureate system partly because it makes people do a science, do a humanities, do maths, and keep some of those doors open for later. Whereas a lot of people really don't realise the doors that they're closing when, you know, they they turn away from some of these subjects um, at a really young age. So you mentioned earlier on uh, in our interview that the best perspective that you can get from reading a work of fiction is that empathetic connection that you get with that with the author. How do you feel this perspective helps you engage with folks that are reporting to you? Obviously, we're looking from like sort of a CFO capacity. I know you're a CEO currently. And then is there a book that you recommend your direct reports read to get to know you? In terms of how it helps, I, I think it's just a case of it's very easy to project and to interpret someone's like response as like the response. What would you be doing to kind of go through that response? But I think, you know, it's always key to try and understand the given person's most motivations and sort of what makes them tick and even just simple things like you know how they how they respond how they like 
to receive feedback. You know, there are, there are some people that I know I can just buy something off over on Slack and it'll be totally fine. And there are others where it's like, I'm going to call because I know like if I'm not having like a face-to-face, pseudo face-to-face interaction, that this is like not going to land well. So I think like the main thing is just by being able to put yourself in the shoes of people very, very different to you. It just helped build up a repertoire rather than kind of like a one-fits-all management style because everyone's different. And a lot of the things that go with, you know, with working with people is just kind of understanding and embracing those differences rather than trying to make everyone a a clone of you. But also, you know, just to take time to like understand people's interests and to care and to make sure through the little things, the small questions that you demonstrate that you actually care about them as a person rather than as, you know, a human resource that you are like trying to like run forward in a particular direction. And I think good management is just, you know, table stakes in like any industries like ours, particularly tech. Because these are knowledge industries. There is no mine or factory or something producing a physical output. Very few have any kind of like hardware, real world physical component. Everything is just the product of great minds. And the more that you can build trust with those great minds, the more you can have conversations that have like productive conflict and challenge, get to the right answer fast. And then like all of like the lovely finance buzzwords like productivity and things like that come in. But you know, but that's like an, an output to just treating people well and having a good relationship and I mean treating people well I think it means looking out for their best interests which is not the same as being like perfectly nice all the time sometimes what you need to do is you need to push someone through like something that they don't want like to or like that is hard to help them get to the thing that you can see is really going to unlock their potential I liken it to kind of like going to the gym when you go to the gym you know if you come out and you're not like sweating or tired probably you've not done anything to actually grow your muscles like there's a degree of like discomfort that you have to kind of go through in order to grow and I think work is the same but it's very hard to help people through that period of discomfort if you don't have trust because otherwise you just seem like a horrible person just always trying to make them do a thing that they don't want to do and in terms of a book to get people to know me I don't think there's any one book although the one book that I always do recommend to people is Anathem by Neil Stevenson and the one thing I always say about it is don't read anything about it just go and read the book I think probably if people on the very few people who do make it all the way through Anathem probably get why I really like it it's a book that very much celebrates logic and celebrates first principles thinking it's a very deep book like quite philosophical I don't think anyone who read it would be surprised that I really like it I'm not quite sure it necessarily would get someone to know me so much as like confuse them even more but it is a great book and I would recommend it to anyone who is willing to like get through a pretty long read. And is there someone, maybe it's from that book or from Wheel of Time or any other fantasy novel that you're a fan of, is there someone fictional that you'd completely trust to be your uh, CFO for one day, to be a CFO for one day? I feel like it's Aragorn because he would know how to use your sword, but like, that's just me. There are a lot of, great characters there is one in the wheel of time which is like gonna mean nothing to anyone who doesn't know the wheel of time but uh, her name's swan sanjay and she is like the amelin sea and she is like her you know she was born as like the daughter of a farmer and like worked her way up to like the top of like the most powerful organization of and they are all kick-ass women like kick-ass women in the world just no beer, like, you know, smart as hell, gets to the point, like safe pair of hands. And what advice do you have for someone looking to become a CFO themselves? I think 
especially if you're in finance, there's a temptation to go down the route of perfection and to make everything very neat and tidy from a finance perspective. And and like I get it, like that makes life easier for you as a finance people if you have really nice strict policies that like make everything nice and neat and you know, you're not going to have to figure things out too much because you processed everything to within like an inch of its life. But the joy of like a really senior finance role and particularly as a CFO it is not so much in having like the most perfect set of accountings like my god like it needs to be good like you need to like get through your audits and things like that and not say like completely forget the accounting side of things but the value is understanding the drivers in your business and the investments in your business and that is not just money investments that is time like the time that is spent especially in knowledge industries that is like a conscious choice and an investment and you need to understand all of the levers in your business and be that person that when someone goes to the CEO and says, wouldn't it be lovely if we had another three engineers so we could build this thing? And you say, okay, there's that and that pulls these levers that has this this impact. But wouldn't you rather pull those levers that are going to have that impact? Because actually, if we did X, Y, Z in marketing, that would deliver this better. You need to like understand the levers within your business better than anyone else. And what I would say to that is that, especially if, you know, it's a new company or a new role, like go down to whatever level of detail you need to get that information and to feel that you understand those levers. I spend a disproportionate amount of time bugging engineers to like explain something to me about how part of our system works or how something affects something else or where the data structure in our payroll engine works. Because I just know that like when I'm sort of sitting there and working with my CEO on the roadmap, like I need to understand like how much work it's going to be to to get to an outcome and, you know, what the drivers are there for quick wins that might then do things for retention or take down the amount of people on who are necessary to support 100 new customers or any of those things. And a lot of those are not financial, but they are drivers and they are levers that you can pull. So that would be my advice, which is that, yes, please get the accounting right, but also make sure that you are the person who is just laser focused on like driving the best possible outcomes from the business and using that amazing seat that finance has to just see every bit of spend and investment in the company and just own it own it more than people are comfortable with you owning it like go meddle ask questions and yeah know your business better than anyone else Special thanks to Sabrina for being on the show. You can find her on LinkedIn if you'd like to say thanks yourself. Remember to leave a five-star review if you enjoy the podcast. We'll see you next time on Beyond the Budget, a podcast from Paddle Studios dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.